Lakewood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You would please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the Gospel of Luke to chapter number 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in the back part to page 55, and you would find yourself at Luke chapter 10. We've been doing for a number of weeks uh, a series of messages around this theme of ready for takeoff, where again, we want to take Wildwood's outreach to a new altitude. And we've been building around several different themes. Uh, one of the themes we looked at as we talk about taking our outreach to a new altitude is the theme of sharing his life. And this is around the idea of evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel with people. And then we talked about the idea of sharing his light, and that is around the theme of building disciples, where we not only want to lead people to Christ, but we want to strengthen them in their faith, have them learn what the Word of God says, and then put them into a position where they also can share the message of Jesus Christ with others. Then the third theme we want to look at today is the theme of sharing his love. It's built around the idea of compassion and justice. And today, as we look at that theme, we're going to look in Luke chapter 10 at verses 30 to 37, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is a story that may be familiar to you, or perhaps it is not. But this term, Good Samaritan, is a common term in our culture. It is used a lot of places outside of a biblical context. For example, someone could be called a good Samaritan when they intervene, helping someone who is in peril. Maybe they're an individual who is attacked or an individual who is stranded in a dangerous situation. And if someone intervenes, we call them a good Samaritan. All around our culture in various cities, there are a number of hospitals, and their name is the Good Samaritan Hospital. This is a common term in our culture. What's interesting, too, now is that a majority of states in the United States have what's called Good Samaritan Laws. And a Good Samaritan Law is designed to protect someone who's acting as a Good Samaritan from prosecution as they come to attempt to aid a victim and maybe they cause injury to a perpetrator. And so we've passed these laws to protect Good Samaritans. And so I, I go through all that just to realize when we talk about a good Samaritan, it's a cultural term that is very common to us. But the question for today is, what does it mean biblically to be a good Samaritan? Should every believer be a good Samaritan? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? Uh, what does this mean for us as a church? And so we want to look at this classic story from Luke chapter 10. And I want to read, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read from Luke chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, the victim, 
he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the other guy said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, what we're going to do this morning is take a, a relatively rapid survey through this story, but we want to do that by looking at four things. The first thing we're going to look at is the question. There is a question that spawned this story by Jesus, and that question is found in verse 29. Then we're going to look at the story itself in verses 30 to 35. Then we're going to, to examine Jesus' conclusion that he makes coming out of the story in verses 36 and 37. And then as we are prone to do at Wildwood Community Church, we're going to draw some practical application for our lives from what we're looking at today. So we want to begin by looking at the question because the question sets the context for the story. And if you go and you look at the, the verses that precede this, you will notice that there is an interaction going on between Jesus and a doctor of theology. You know, someone who knew his theology through and through. And um, he replies to Jesus in verse 27 and basically summarizes all of the Old Testament in a couple of phrases. This is what the Old Testament's all about. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, see, that's the vertical dimension, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal dimension. And so he delivers this piece of information to Jesus, and you notice what happens in verse 29 Wishing to justify himself to Jesus, to do a little dodge, he says, as a doctor of theology to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If you are to love your neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? It's like, what is truth? You know, it's just a dodge. And with that as the context, Jesus tells this story beginning there in verse 30. Now, you notice it talks about someone going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, what you need to know is that Jerusalem was very high in elevation, and Jericho was rather low. And this descent from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very mountainous, rugged road. It would wind around. In fact, over the 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, it dropped 3,300 feet. 
And because it was this mountainous, rugged road, it was a great place for robbers to hang out because they could spring on you and you wouldn't know that they were there. In fact, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was nicknamed the Bloody Road because of all the beatings and the robberies that would happen on it. So you have a man who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is jumped on by robbers there in verse 30, and they strip him and they beat him up, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And then we come to verses 31 to 32. And it mentions there that there was a priest who was also going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he sees this victim there, and he chooses to pass by on the other side. And also you have a Levite who is coming down the road, and when he comes to the place and he sees the victim laying there, he passes by on the other side. Now you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I don't understand what's a priest and a Levite doing on this mountainous road. Well, it's important to understand that many of the priests lived outside of Jerusalem. Now, their work was to go to Jerusalem and to perform the sacrifices in the temple, but they would do that on a rotational basis. And so you might have a priest who lived in Jericho who might go up and serve for a week in Jerusalem, but then he would head for home and come back down the road. A Levite would also assist and help at the temple. And apparently he also had done some spiritual work at the temple, and he was on his way back down to Jericho. Now, when we look at this idea of a priest and a Levite, I, I don't want to just simply give us an application that we can identify with today. What would they be like of individuals today, particularly around a spiritual environment? And we could put it this way. The priest is like a pastor, and the Levite, would be like someone who might be an elder in the church or might be a Sunday school teacher in the church, might be a ministry coordinator in the church. So we're talking about people who are involved in the spiritual environment, and both of them are going down. You know, Likewise, they have the same exact response. They see this victim, and they say, I'm going to go right around him on the other side of the road. Now, what do you think is going through their mind? We don't really know for sure, but I have a pretty good suspicion because I've been involved in a, in a, in a spiritual leadership position, and I, I think this is probably what they were thinking. I've been in Jerusalem. I've been doing my spiritual duty for a week. I'm busy. I'm really cooking along here. I got things to do. I got my family to see. Somebody else can deal with this guy laying in the gutter. I think the Levite had the same exact kind of reaction. I've done my spiritual duty. I've been assisting. I've been doing these things. I'm busy enough. Somebody else can take care of this issue. You know what is really fascinating about this story is that in some sense, the story would be just as effective without verses 31 and 32 in it. You know, when this doctor of theology says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? He could have just talked about the Samaritan that stopped and did all these things. But he includes verses 31 and 32. Why do you think that is? I think part of the reason is, is they are a picture 
of the way we tend to rationalize situations, especially if you're on any level of spiritual leadership. And I'm just being transparent. We can have this tendency to rationalize. We come along and we see a situation where someone is really in distress and it's very easy for us to rationalize, hey, you know what, I'm kind of busy, I've been doing my spiritual duty, somebody else can handle this. Somebody else will deal with this issue. We can rationalize and we can think things like this. And it's true. Problem people, they are time-consuming people. And I've already done my part. I already lead at the church, you see. I don't need to be involved in this. Too time-consuming to get mucked up with people like this. Or how about this rationalization? You know, by the way, stopping and helping this guy, you don't know where the robbers were. There was some risk involved in stopping to help this guy. And a lot of times I think we can rationalize when we're dealing with a situation where there may be some risk to us helping someone we would just say, you know, if we just steer clear of this one, I don't really have to take any risks. Or how about this rationalization? And I can identify with this. You know, this situation that I, I now see here, I come face to face with, it's an interruption to my life. I got, again, things I'm trying to do. This is a nuisance for me to deal with. And I think that's why verses 31 and 32 are there, because we have a tendency to rationalize things, which is exactly what the priest and the Levite were doing. See, even though they were serving God, they were self-focused in their hearts. And I think that's a struggle we can all identify with. Where we could be serving God, doing whatever spiritual duty, but really we have self-focused hearts. Well, then you come in the story to verse 33, which is the key verse, it's the pivot verse of the whole story. And that is the appearance of the Samaritan. Now, you cannot see this in the English language uh, Bibles that we have, but in the original language, the word Samaritan is in very emphatic position. A Samaritan appears on the scene. And you know, the Samaritans in that day were, were the half-breeds. They were half Jewish. They were basically the progeny of the Jews who came, who were there living in the land when the Assyrian invaders came in and they intermarried with the Assyrian invaders. And they were viewed in that day as spiritual mongrels. And in fact, what's really fascinating is if you just back up a couple of days in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 54, something very interesting happens, and that is that Jesus comes into a Samaritan village, and it says they were not welcoming to him. And could you really blame them when they were Jews, and the Jews had labeled you as spiritual mongrels, and you can begin to see the resentment building. And what's fascinating is that James and John in that section basically say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, would you like us to just command fire to come down from heaven and barbecue all these Samaritans? Would you like us to do that? Just shows you the attitude that they had towards Samaritans. And so when Jesus says, a Samaritan, stop. This was a shocking turn in the story. 
And if you mark in your Bible, I want you to look there at verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And then these next two phrases are very important. You can underline them. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. You know, that phraseology about feeling compassion, when you studied in the Gospels, you know who else is described? Jesus. Jesus is described having the same response. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says this, seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what is the point in all of this? I think this is the point that Jesus is making. It really doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're some sort of a spiritual leader. What matters is your heart. It's not about who you are. You may be someone that other people look down upon. It's not a matter of who you are. It's a matter of your heart. You don't need to have a special position to have compassion for those who are in distress. You don't need to have a special pedigree at all. And while the priest and the Levite had a closed heart, and they were very self-focused, the Samaritan had an open heart, and he was others-focused, just like Jesus. And so the question is, are we, are we open-hearted and others-focused, just like Jesus? So he feels compassion for him, but I want you to see that his compassion leads to care. You see that there in verse 34. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. The wine would be a disinfectant and an antiseptic, and the oil would soften and soothe his wounds. And so compassion, you see, will lead to care, and care leads to cost. We see that in verse 35. On the next day, he took out the two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. That's the way it works. Compassion leads to care, which leads to cost. It costs us our time. It costs us our money. So having told the story, Jesus then turns to the conclusion that he wants to make in verses 36 and 37. Notice what it says there. He's asking this doctor of theology, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? I'm rather fascinated by the doctor of theology's response because he doesn't say, ah, it would be the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Instead, he says, well, it's the one who showed mercy toward him, the one who was aware of the need, the one who had the ability to meet the need, and the one who took action, just like Jesus did with us on the spiritual plane, right? 
We were lost sinners on the side of the road in dire straits. We were helpless. We were hopeless. And Jesus Christ came alongside and motivated by love and compassion for us. He sacrificially met our needs. Jesus says to this doctor of theology and to you and to me, go and do the same. Now, what does that really mean? Does that mean that we, you know, we gather together some oil and a little bit of wine and we start walking around looking for people who are mugged? Is that the idea here? You know, the story is told of a, of a young man named Bob who got an incredible Christmas present one year from his brother, a brand new car. How many people would like their brother this Christmas to give them a brand new car? Let me see the hands out there. All right, that'd be pretty cool. That's what he got at Christmas time, a brand new car from his brother. And Bob, on Christmas Eve, when he came out of his office to drive his brand new car home, he noticed a street kid admiring the shiny car. This is yours, mister, he said. Sure is. My brother gave it to me for Christmas. Well, the boy was astonished. You mean he, he just gave it to you and it didn't cost you anything? Wow, boy, I wish. And Bob, in his mind, as his little boy's voice trailed off for a minute, just kind of finished a sentence in his mind, you know. Yeah, you wish you had one of these too, I'm sure. But then, Bob was surprised because the little boy actually continued his sentence. I wish that I could be a brother like that. And Bob was so astonished that he just impulsively said to this little boy, Would you like a ride? Oh yeah, that'd be great. So they went off with the boy's eyes sparkling with excitement. And after a while, he said to Bob, Mister, would you mind stopping in front of my house? And Bob's thinking, I <laughs> he wants to show off to the family how he gets to ride in this shiny new car. Will you stop where those two steps are? And almost before the car had come to a full stop, the boy was on his way into the house. And a few moments later, he came back, and Bob saw to his amazement that this little boy was carrying his even younger, little, crippled brother. There it is, John, just like I told you upstairs. His brother gave it to him, and it didn't cost him a cent. And someday, John, I'm going to get you one just like it so we can go see all the things I keep telling you about. By now, tears were flowing freely from Bob's eyes as he took that little crippled boy and lifted him into his car to share a ride. And for years later, he said that the greatest gift he received that Christmas wasn't the car, but the attitude of that young boy saying, boy, I wish I could be a brother like that. And that's what this story, this parable, really should make us say as we look at that Samaritan. I wish I could be a neighbor like kind of interesting to look at the mindset of all the various characters in this story. You know, the mindset of the perpetrators, you know, the one who beat him up and robbed him, 
their mindset was, what is yours is mine, and I'm going to take what I want. And then you have the mindset of the priest and the Levite. Their mindset was, what is mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it for myself. And then you have the Samaritan, and his mindset was, what is mine could be yours, and I am willing to share it. You know, we know that we are self-focused when our concern is for our agenda. We know that we are others-focused when our concern is for hurting people. Even though it may mean an interruption to our schedule, even though it may mean that we take some kind of a risk, even though it may mean that we expend our money and our time. Now, having looked at all of that, I want to talk for a few moments about practical application. And here is the first practical application of two that I have. Practical application number one is that we need to avoid common tendencies when it comes to people in distress. You say, what are the common tendencies? Well, there's at least two I want to talk about. The first common tendency is to check out. What do I mean by that? Well, you know what it's like in our media-driven culture. We have so many stories of people in distress, internationally here, internationally there, internationally over here. We have all kinds of stories that go around us culturally. We see commercials and programs that remind us of all of these needs. And how do you respond? It's the way I tend to respond. It's like, whoa, 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 there's way too much out there. This is overwhelming. And what often happens to us is we become rather cynical. And there's just an avalanche of needs out there. Who can meet all of those things? I can't do all those things, and so what do we do? We do nothing. We just check out. You see, that's a common tendency that we need to avoid. Uh, the other common tendency is a real one, but it's less popular. The first one is probably what most of us tend to do, and that is to check out. The second tendency is to burn out. This is for those individuals who see all these multiple needs, and then they begin to try to respond to all of them. And as they're trying to respond to all of them, they find themselves being overwhelmed. They find themselves being exhausted because they can't do everything. And then they're really not much good to do anything because they're so wiped out. So what we need to do is we need to avoid the common tendencies. We should not check out, and we should not burn out trying to do it all. We were at a pastor's conference not too long ago where Andy Stanley gave this great piece of advice, and I think this is good advice for me and good advice for you. He said this, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. See, we can all do that. Do for one which you wish you could do for everyone. So that's the first practical application, to avoid the common tendencies. The second one is this, ask the key question. And the key question for you and the key question for me is who needs my care and compassion? It may be somebody who's physically challenged. It may be someone who is a victim of abuse. It may be somebody who's in a chronic situation. It may be someone who is in need of mercy. But who needs my care and my compassion? 
You know, one of the things we've been doing throughout this series is we've provided you a living illustration of some ways individually and as a church family we can be involved. And we want to give you an idea of part of what we've already been involved with, which is a ministry to Nicaragua called One by One. And Chase and Julie Russell have been our missionaries to Nicaragua. And I'm going to invite them to come up, and they're just going to share a little bit more about what they've been doing with One by One Ministries in Managua, Nicaragua. So welcome, Chase and Julie. Hi. Well, we want to give you an idea of what um, a family's life looks like in the neighborhoods we work with in Nicaragua. Imagine with us for a moment that you and your family live in Nicaragua. You live in a 300-square-foot house made of sheet metal with nine other family members. Your four kids are all from different spouses, none of whom live with you anymore. The only beds you have in the house are a queen-size mattress and a hammock. Anyone who doesn't fit sleeps on the dirt floor. You cook over a wood fire because you can't afford an oven. You use the bathroom and shower in an outhouse because you don't have indoor plumbing. You buy food each day for your family because you have no refrigerator. In fact, you have no appliances at all. Rice and beans are what you can afford to feed your family, and on a good day, everyone can eat twice. Everyone in the home pools together their income to come up with $3 daily rent. Missing one day brings eviction. No one in your home has a steady job, but buys goods from a distributor and tries to resell them in the market at a higher price. Under this kind of daily stress, you don't see the value in making sure your kids go to school regularly because you don't honestly believe that education will give them a better life. Even if you did, you can't afford the required school supplies and school uniforms for all of them. As you struggle to earn your daily bread, you have no time or energy left to discipline your children. If you don't need their help working during the day, you leave them home for hours at a time because there's no one else to watch them and because someone needs to be at home to protect your home from burglary. You know there's good money in prostituting out your kids, but you hope to not ever be that desperate. You also know that if anything unexpected happens, like an illness, everything might fall apart. Your family goes to the local church each week to keep God happy with you. There, you hear a sermon about being good to earn God's blessing, but half your attention is on making sure no one pickpockets you during the service. If you're honest, you believe that the only way to meet your needs is to take what you can get, when you can get it, however you can get it. This is the context that we've been doing ministry in in Nicaragua, and obviously not Everyone lives like this, um, but we have seen firsthand just hundreds and hundreds of families that do live like this. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't used to see the value in why ministries spend a lot of effort in meeting physical needs, like alleviating poverty or, or um, you know, broken relationships and stuff like that. Um, but now, like, after being there for three years, I, I do see the value in that because these physical problems can put these huge obstacles for people receiving the gospel. Um, I'll give you an example um, just with education. So... The kids and youth that come to our, our church services um, lack a good education. So what this means is they have very poor reading skills, which means that reading the Bible is probably not going to happen. Um, they're also not used to sitting still and listening. So what they hear, um, they're not going to hear very much, they're not going to understand very much, and they're not going to remember very much. Um, all of this is just a huge obstacle to them receiving just the basic information um, that we need for, for the gospel. And I'm, I'm not saying that information is... Um, that salvation is just based on information. But I think we'd all agree that some information is crucial for a saving faith. Um, 
For example, we had these training classes earlier this year um, where we taught theology and um, just uh, ministry concepts and leadership concepts to new leaders. And, uh, and my part of that was just teaching about kids ministry. And uh, on the very last day, I gave an exam to just you know, kind of recap the, the, the last few weeks. And for some reason, this new girl showed up who hadn't come to any other day. But I was like, well, I guess take the test anyway. Um, and the last question of the test was, how would you explain salvation to a child who hasn't spent much time in church? And the guy who's now our kids director wrote this great analogy of this God being this tree of life and we're these dried up leaves when we're separated from him. Um, but this new girl who'd spent her whole life in church um, wrote this, uh, if you behave well with dad, mom, and your siblings, you'll be saved because Jesus loves kids who behave. You have to behave well and do good things to go to heaven with Jesus. Um, now, we know the Bible doesn't teach that salvation is from our good works. Um, but this is crucial information she was lacking, even though she'd spent her whole life in church. And that's the story of a lot of our kids, that they go to church, but they're not capturing this basic information because they have these physical problems causing these obstacles to them. Unless something changes in their life, um, that's how they're going to stay. So as, <clears throat> excuse me, as a ministry, we preach the gospel and we address physical needs. One way we do this is through our Segundo Paso after-school program. Currently, we have two classes of 30 kids each, and we're hoping to double the program to 120 kids by next summer through child sponsorship. Through this program, we work with some of the most at-risk kids in the city and with their families. For families who are willing to meet some basic requirements, one of which is ensuring that their kids are attending school each day, we take those kids and we help them with their homework, we tutor them in subjects that they are unable to learn in school, they learn how to play an instrument like the piano, guitar, or drums. They learn how to use a computer. They learn about other places in the world outside of Nicaragua. We also teach them more in-depth about spiritual truths. On occasion, we are even able to give them educational experiences they would probably never have, like going to the zoo. Actually, Bruce and John were able to go with one of our classes to the zoo when they were visiting in August. Uh, we also have a Nicaraguan psychologist on staff who meets not only with the kids, but also with their families to promote healthier relationships. The families get help paying for school supplies, as well as help with basic medical needs, and occasionally other special needs based on the family. We really enjoy doing ministry in Nicaragua. Um, we're really anxious to get back there. Um, we're in Norman for uh, several months for health reasons. Uh, the upside of that is that if you guys want to know more about our ministry, um, we'll be around for a while, so we'd love to catch a meal with you, catch coffee with you. Um, we just want to thank you guys for listening to us and just for all the prayer and support that we have gotten from the body uh, of Wildwood. So thank you very much. It was really a joy for us to be able to go down and see firsthand um, what Chase and Julie have been involved with as they work with this organization called One by One. And as she said, they have evangelistic meetings, but they've also developed this Segundo Paso, which basically means second step program to take these kids and help them out of the deep hole that they're in. And uh, one of the things that we're really excited about when we talk about Ready for Takeoff is we have stated that the first $100,000 that's, that's given this year is going to go directly to ministry, directly right now to ministry. And one of the things it's going to go to is we're going to be giving $5,000 to the Segundo Paso program there. Um, and that's something else you could get involved with individually. You could actually sponsor an individual student. So you can learn a little bit more about that by talking to Chase and Julie. But it's, it's a great ministry and a great opportunity for us to show compassion 
and some people who are, who are in a lot of distress. Now, a sister organization to One by One is another organization called House of Hope. And it's basically a, a compound that has been developed to rescue women and children right out of the brothels and right out of prostitution. And we had shared before, this is a shocking number, that in Nicaragua, try to imagine this, 66% of girls by the age of 11 have been involved in prostitution. And as, as Julie mentioned, it's a way for the families to make money. And so the ministry of House of Hope is to, is to how to rescue people. And what I'm, I'm going to show you a video in a moment. And when we talk about girls, it's one thing to talk about girls and you can't see anybody. I want you to actually meet some of the girls. Uh, you're going to meet two girls immediately that you're going to see uh, talking with this intern. And they, they were not involved in prostitution, um, but their mother was and they were probably headed there. But then you're going to meet three different girls who themselves were involved in prostitution. And they're the two that you see hugging the intern together. And then there's another girl off to the side who's got a brilliant big smile. And uh, the girl that you're going to see with the curly hair, um, you want to listen carefully to the audio track on this, but they, she, the intern says she was one of the, the ten most damaged girls that's ever come into the compound. And we got permission to show you here at Wildwood uh, this little video clip. And then at the very end, you're going to see something that we're also going to get involved with, which is we want to help to build a duplex, which is going to house two families who have been rescued out of prostitution. So check out the video. They were getting to the age of um, going into prostitution. Yeah. So, yeah. This one and this one were actually in the brothel. Uh-huh. Kind of look at them so they don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is Tamara. Uh-huh. And this is Martha. <laughs> she said she makes fun of us all the gringos. Uh-huh. Martha is here. Or Martita, because she's little. Martita. Um, but Tamara has been here um, for about six, six months. Uh -huh. And there's been a lot of change with her. Um, she came very, very broken. She's probably one of the top medals her most, most abused um, She still has her crying spells, but she's holding her head up and laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And this Hola. is Esmeralda. She has been here for maybe a month or so. <laughs> her and her sister came about a month ago. Her sister was never in the box, but she yeah. was. Uh -huh. Oh, she's 14. Oh. That changes. 13, uh -huh. 14. Yeah, yeah. I have 10. You know, what you see there is these, these are little girls, little girls who have been involved. And what you see there in that picture, uh, that little pink building where you see there's two doors, one on either end, um, that's an example of a duplex. And one of the things we're committing to do immediately with part of the first $100,000 is for $14,000 to build another duplex because there's more people that they can rescue. They just don't have the facilities for it. Tremendous program the House of Hope has. It's very disciplined. Um, not only shares the gospel with these kids and, and, and the women, um, but trains them in all kinds of different ways. And so it's just exciting, the opportunity that we have to be a part of making a difference. 
And you know, one of the things that we have to all admit, I think, when you begin to look at this story of the Good Samaritan is that we just can't be like a priest and a Levite who just walk on the other side of the road and walk on by. I want you to watch another video, and it's just, it just, it's something I want you to reflect on. What does it mean? What does it mean for God to use you or me?
You know, the heart of Ready for Takeoff is to take some action to raise our outreach to a whole new altitude. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up because we're going to close with, with a song this morning. But I just want to encourage you, you know, God is going to have some of us go to some of these places and to actually be one who travels in one of these different areas that we're involved with, or here locally to actually go and get involved. But for all of us, we can play a part. We can all play a part in seeing ready for takeoff become a reality. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for the incredible truth of your word. And we would pray that we would be men and women of compassion like the Savior. Protect us from just checking out. Protect us from burning out. But may we be people and may we be a church that is involved in making a difference for your glory and for your honor. And Father, we have, we have 10,000 reasons for, for asking you to work in and through us that way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.